to our final series uh, on the attributes of God. This is it. This is our final week, our final teaching, uh, our final installment, our final episode uh, into uh, this curriculum, this, this deep dive into the attributes of God. Uh, to a certain degree, I am sad to be on our final week, on our final topic, on our final attribute uh, in this series. Um, it's been so rich and life-giving. Uh, to me uh, with regards to how it is that I see God now and how it is that I view God, that I see him differently now that I have uh, been able to be more informed and I understand to a greater degree uh, who he says he is through his word. And so today uh, we are focusing on the attribute of God's love, the attribute of God's love uh, today. So uh, I just hope that you are uh, ready to go um, as we dive into God's word <clears throat> and as we sort of plumb you know the the the, the deepness of, of his word to understand and to discover what his love is you know I often uh, use illustrations to sort of uh, communicate what it is that we're actually doing with the word of God and and, and today it, I feel as though there's a sense of this life-giving water that is available for us uh, in God's word, that, that God's word sort of <clears throat> typifies uh, this deep well that we get to um, we get to plunge our buckets down into. And, and at the bottom of this well is this infinite vastness uh, of God's uh, overflowing goodness. And uh, within the word of God, it is this sort of vastness, this well that we, we take our buckets and we drop them down and we get to draw out the life-giving water that only he can provide through his word. And so as we do that, it's sort of like what we're doing is, is as believers, as worshipers, as followers, you know, our buckets, you know, we when we go to God's word, we're, we're there to fill the bucket. And oftentimes life begins to drain that bucket. Oftentimes as we go through seasons and situations and deal with the day-to-day the -day things of life that oftentimes our spiritual buckets, they just leak out and they run dry. And so the Word of God is this sort of infinite, vast, you know, uh, place where we can uh, descend our buckets, where we can draw down our spiritual uh, pails and we get to come back up with life-giving water that sort of quenches our dryness, that satisfies our spiritual thirst. And so today as we do that, I hope that that that, that is how it is you see what we're about to do. Um, because as worshipers, you know, we need to be, uh, we need to be in continual um, fellowship with God through his word. And God speaks most precisely and most clearly and most accurately through the word that he's given us. And so uh, as we do that, it's, it's important as worshipers that the manner in which we worship God is informed and established by our knowledge or our knowing of God. Um, in other words, our theology, what we know about God, what we study about God, uh, most uh, most effectively determines our worship of God. That as we focus our attention on God, as we focus our attention on the truth of God and savor the immeasurable worth of Christ, that it would cause in us an ever-increasing affection for God and a devotion to Christ. And so that is sort of the reason why we have gone through this series and have seeked to discover in greater uh, splendor his goodness, his attributes, all that makes God, God. And so 
we, we know that we're supposed to do this. We know that as worshipers, that, that this is a, a, an integral, vital part of our life. Uh, the word actually tells us to seek it in order to acquire and to apprehend knowledge, not just for an academic exercise, not uh, just uh, to gain uh, facts or uh, to gain insight, but to grow in our relationship with Christ. It is a spiritual act when we dive into the Word of God, when we discover the truth of Christ that He's shown us through His teachings inspired by the Spirit. And so in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, we see uh, Peter talking about this. He said, His divine power, meaning God, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who calls us to his own glory and excellence. So God has given us or is giving us everything we need, not in accord with what we think we need, but everything we need which pertains to and is in agreement with a life of godliness and a life that is life-giving, a life that is lived that pleases God, and that God has given us everything we need in order for our lives to reflect his holiness, in order for our lives to, uh, to reflect and communicate godliness, that God has given us all of this. And how, is he, how has he given it to us? He's given it to us through the knowledge of Christ. So as we grow in our knowing of Christ, as we grow in our understanding of God's word, as we grow in our understanding of the teachings of Christ, and it's illuminated to us by the spirit that lives in us, it causes uh, us to be able to live godly lives, to live with life and godliness. And then he finishes off um, this epistle, uh, Peter, his second, uh, his second epistle, uh, with these words in uh, chapter 3, 16 and 17. And this is what he says with regards to uh, Paul. So Paul, at the same time Peter is writing his letters, Paul is writing his letters to the churches. And so as Peter is writing his second epistle to the churches in Galatia, uh, Paul's letters are circulating and people are, are, are reading Paul's letters. And, and Peter makes mention of this in his second epistle in chapter three. This is what he says. He says, there are some things in them that, we, uh, that are hard to understand, meaning there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So a uh, couple things we need to understand here is that Peter uh, is putting Paul's writings on par with uh, the scriptures that they already have. So in other words, Peter, what Peter is saying is that what you're receiving from Paul, what you're receiving from me, uh, is, has the same rank, same authority as the scriptures that, were, that you have been given. They are all come from God. They are all inspired by the Spirit. And so he says to them, these things are hard. Uh, and, and these people, these people who are ignorant and unstable in all their ways, uh, they uh, take Paul's letters and they distort them. And they distort them and they, uh, they, they misrepresent them to their own destruction. In other words, uh, what they're doing is not leading to life. What they're doing is not leading to godliness. What they're doing is leading to destruction because they have taken the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and Paul's letters and Paul's writings, and he, they're misrepresenting them. They're presenting them in a different way uh, that doesn't accurately communicate the truth about Christ. But he says this, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, in other words, you know this is going on, so you therefore take care that you are not carried away 
with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. The idea is, is that uh, as we move away from the truth of Christ, as we move away from the, the simplicity of Paul and Peter's letters, as we move away from our commitment to the scriptures, he said we will become unstable. In other words, we will be tossed to and fro, as Paul says sometimes. We'll be carried away into error and not even know it. Uh, we'll be believing things about Christ, things about God, things about the Holy Spirit that simply aren't true, which causes us not to be able to worship God in spirit and in truth. But grow, he says, grow, do not do this, but grow in the grace and check this out, knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this idea here, again, is that Peter is saying, growing in the knowledge, how? By not swerving from the scriptures, not swerving from God's word, not swerving from uh, Paul's letters, not swerving from uh, the holy scriptures that you already have with you. And so that is why we do what we do. That is why we hold fast to the scriptures. That is why we want to exposit the scriptures. That's why we want to go through the scriptures and, and understand what it is that they're saying in the, in the, original, uh, the original intent of the author and the original message to the original audience. So that is why we are doing what we're doing uh, with these attributes. So with that being said, what is love? What is love that is the attribute we are discussing and talking about uh, today what is love uh, if many of you are familiar with uh, the rock of the 1980s uh, there was a band named foreigner uh, and they came out with a song in 1984 called i want to know what love is i want to know what love is and it was a really popular song um, and to a certain degree, uh, that is the world's message. That is the world's striving. That is what the world is, is going after. That is the, the world's, um, how do I want to say it? It is their quest to a certain degree to find out what love is. And so they are on this endless search, this endless desire to understand, to discover, and to experience love. There is no finality in the world's attempts to unearth it. They are relentless in their pursuit to define it. This is the world. And those who claim they have found it participate in an infinite endeavor to customize it. They make it what they want. They personalize it. Uh, what's love for one person is not for another, and love can be expressed in a multitude of ways depending on the person's own subjective opinion. They continue to retain the exclusive rights to its definition. The world decides and says uh, what love is. They are resolute in their feigned understanding of it as they herald its diversity and boast of their unsurpassed expertise in it. Match.com, every online dating formula method, they've reduced the idea of love to simple questions and formulas and methods. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't work sometimes. I know plenty of people that have met online and are wonderfully, uh, you know, enjoying a marriage or a happy relationship, uh, a fulfilling relationship. Uh, but what I am saying is, is that the world, uh, absent of God, has no idea, no concept of the, uh, the ideal or, or, or the thought of or the expression of true love as God has shown it to be in his word. 
In many respects, the world reduces the idea of love to superficial sensation or shallow emotionalism, mere magnetism, frivolous appeal, or the allure of the unknown or the desirability of something new. That is oftentimes how we would characterize and describe love in the world. And while the biblical view of love, of God's love, does, does include God's feelings and emotions, it must be understood with a greater sense of immeasurable commitment rooted in the reality of his divineness and the perfection of his counsel. That is how we are to see God's love. God's authentication and definition of love stands uh, in direct defiance to the cultural narrative. The church must resist appealing to culture for its definition of love and apprehend a robust understanding and experience of the biblical love that God has declared with all certainty and confidence in the reality found in the gospel of Christ and in the person of Christ. So, what is God saying about himself when he, we consider the love of God? What, what, when we search God's word, what do we find in it that, that shows us, that demonstrates to us what God is saying about himself with regards to his love? And how is this different from the world's understanding, the world's perception of love? Well, in order to understand that, in order to really uh, apprehend the, 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 the fullness of God's love, and to a certain degree, degree, we never can really do that until we see Christ face to face in the presence of the fullness of his glory when we go to be with him. Uh, there is a way in which we can sort of consider uh, this idea of love in a greater way and the way in which we do that is going to the word of God and seeing what God uses for words to describe his love so this word love occurs in many linguistic forms in the Old and New Testament and in many different contexts and so uh, we're going to start here in scripture by defining some terms that refer to and that seek to communicate the idea of God's love so first we're going to start in the New Testament we're going to start with two Greek words, uh, one in the noun form and one in the uh, verb form. Uh, and this first word that we're going to just mention briefly and, and describe for a moment is this word phileo. This word phileo is a Greek word. It is a verb. Uh, and it simply means this, to manifest some act or token of kindness or affection, to love or to regard with affection. This is where we get uh, the terms uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This is where we get uh, the term philanthropy, right? The idea of uh, to, to engage in an act or token of kindness. So this idea phileo we see in the Greek, this verb form of the word love, uh, means these things. We see it in Matthew 26, 48, uh, when Matthew describes Judas's kiss to Jesus when he betrays him, he uses that word phileo uh, that's rendered kiss in the English. Matthew 10, 37, uh, Jesus uses the word phileo to describe a child's love for a parent. And then in John 5, 20, we actually see uh, that, the, um, that Jesus uh, uses this word phileo to describe the love the father has for the son. The second word in the Greek that we, uh, that we know is rendered love, and this is 
probably a much more popular term, you've probably heard this before, is agape. This is a noun form of the word love, uh, and this means love generally, right? The noun form it would be just love in general, generosity, kind concern, devotedness, unmerited, unwavering. And in the verb tense of this word agape, it would be to love, to value, to esteem, faithful towards or delight in. <clears throat> in 1 John 4, 8, which we'll take a look at in a moment, uh, we see this word agape to describe God's intrinsic love. We see it in Romans 5, 8 as the love that is shown in a sacrificial way through Christ on the cross. And then finally in Galatians 5, 22, we see Paul talking about this type of love uh, in the fruits of the Spirit in that it is a realized love in the sense that uh, when the fruits of the Spirit are borne out in the, in the believer's life, uh, one of the fruits is love. And that word that he uses for love that comes through the, the obedience of, to the Spirit is this word <clears throat> agape. Going into the Old Testament, there are two words uh, that we can look to primarily to describe and to communicate this word love. This first Old Testament word is called ahab. It is the verb form uh, in the Hebrew, and this is to love, to like, to be loved, friendship, familial, romantic, or loyalty. The second word that we see in the Hebrew is this other word called kesed. And this word is the most popular word used to describe love. And, and really, this word is exclusively used to describe and to communicate the love of God. It's used uh, over 249 times in the Old Testament. And it means this, unfailing love, loyal love, devotion, kindness, covenant love. And so this is the love that we see uh, oftentimes, like I said, in the Old Testament to describe the love of God. Often when we see this word translated in the Old Testament into English, this word kased, this Hebrew word, when it's translated into the English, would always usually have steadfast in front of the word love. It's not simply translated love, but a lot of times in the ESV and in the New, uh, the New American Standard, they'll translate this word, this Hebrew word for love, as steadfast love, not just simply love. And that is to really communicate the exclusivity of God's love, being steadfast, devoted, committed, unwavering. So simply stated, the love of God is this. It is his unwavering and steadfast commitment to his salvific plan, motivated by his preeminent tenderness and stunning affection towards humanity in Christ. In other words, the love of God unequivocally declares that God is incapable of fluctuating in his fondness. The degree to which he cares for us is unchanging. He is not altering in his compassion toward us, even in our darkest moments, even when our sin seems overwhelming. It is not possible for Christ to be fickle with regards to his deep affection for us. His concern for us is unchangeable. His warmth toward us never wavers. God's delight does not rise and fall with the ever-changing tide of our seeming virtuous behavior. We are not in a seesaw relationship with God and his love, continually examining the degree to which he gives it to us based on our performance. God's love for us cannot shift. It cannot be annulled. It is infinitely impossible to be erratic or unstable. 
God's love extends far beyond simple feelings for us and emotions, but displays an unwavering commitment to us in his plan of salvation through Christ. God's love explicitly presents with unimaginable splendor the godness of God. It is what makes him, him alone. God in his greatness cannot be more precisely apprehended than through this unaltering love. God's love renders him intrinsically matchless, unequaled, incomparable, and unrivaled. This is the godness of God found in his love, the exclusivity of God that he has in his love that no one else possesses. So, let's uh, take a look at some features of God's love. First is this, God's love is intrinsic. God's love is intrinsic. God enjoys the exclusive authorship of love. Think about that. He authors love. He creates love. To, to a certain degree, God doesn't even create love because it is intrinsically within his nature. So it has always existed uh, from eternity past, and it's infinite. So there's never been an end uh, or a beginning to love of God because there's no end or beginning to God. He delights and relishes in the reality of his love. He enjoys it. He enjoys the exclusive authorship of his love and he delights in the fact that he is the genesis of love and that it, it exists in him intrinsically always, never wavering, never decreasing or increasing, but always the same in its fullest measure, infinitely. So God enjoys the exclusive authorship of his love, but God not only establishes this authorship in his word, but authenticates it and demonstrates it within the Trinity. The best starting place for the subject of God's love is in the beginning. In the beginning, in the Trinity, from eternity past, stretching far beyond from this present moment, the undeniable reality that God's word presents is that God is love. God is love. 1 John 4, 8, we see this. God is love. This is, speaks to the intrinsic nature of the love of God. It is part of his being. It is his essence. Uh, it cannot be separated from him. This word love here that John uses is agape love. God's very nature is saturated by his love. The very essence of Christ is pervasively loving. When the heart of a, a man or a woman is, is struck with the sobering reality of Christ, his love is palpable. It's not just some idea we read about in the text, but it is palpable, it is real. It is, it, is, it is felt, it is experienced. To the one who desires God, the compassion and loving kindness that permeates his very being is self-evident. A relationship with God uh, most you know, uh, wonderfully uh, is a conduit and a vehicle for the experience of his love. To the one who is brought to an awareness of their separation from God, and their desperate need for Christ, his care and concern is tangible. 
When you come to Christ and you recognize your desperate need for him, you recognize your separation from him because of your sin, and you turn to Christ and you fall to, at the grace of Christ, when you fall at the cross of Christ, when you, when you understand what the grace of Christ offers, right? When you understand that, you are immediately impacted with the love of God, which is tangible in his salvation work. The intrinsic nature of God's love means that it is inseparable from every other attribute of God. That it is completely and perfectly existent within the essence of God in its fullest measure. In other words, God's love is a self-existent love. God's love does not rely on any other source for its existence nor its demonstration. But it is dependent on God and God alone. God is self-existent in himself and in his love. He doesn't require uh, another source to provide it for him. He doesn't rely on anything else for its demonstration. But God alone authors it and is the source of it. It means, that, it means that God's love is a holy love. If, if God's love is perfectly and wonderfully existent in the nature of God along with all of his other attributes, that means God's love is a holy love. It is set apart. It is exclusive. It is distinct from every other idea of love or any other imagination of love including the culture, including the world. God's love is a holy love because it is separate. It doesn't look like any other idea of love that we see in the natural world. It is a holy love. It means that God's love is a truthful love, right? So God shows us the reality of love for what it truly is. Whatever God says love is, it is. So God's love is a truthful love love it, it god's love is is a truthful love because it can never be manipulated god's love can never manipulate anything it can never be devious or deceitful it can never be um it can never be lacking and it always has its best purpose in mind god's love perfectly shows and displays the stunning accuracy of its reality. God's love also is immutable. It does not change, nor increasing or decreasing. John 17, 24, I want to point you to this text here. Uh, this uh, shows us, gives us a glimpse into uh, the intrinsic love of God that is, that is uh, existent within the Trinity, within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, within the three persons. John 17, 24 says this, Father, I desire that they also, meaning his disciples, uh, those who he's leaving, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. So uh, Jesus is praying that God would, uh, would hold fast, would continue to be faithful to, that the Father would bring uh, all of his disciples and his apostles through the trial of suffering and affliction that they're going to receive and bring them through with godliness, that he would present them to the Son at the end of the age, that they would, be, um, that they would persevere and that they would be kept in the love of Christ 
until they are with him in eternity. He says, uh, I want them to be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Here we see the intrinsic love of God existing ex eternally in the Trinity. The Father demonstrating his great love for the Son and drawing many to him. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them to me. So the Father shows his love by drawing people to the Son uh, so that the Son can receive them. And that's what he's talking about with his disciples here uh, in this text in John 17, 24. So the Father shows his love to the Son by doing this. And the Son, loving the Father, agrees to come to the earth, to condescend to the earth, uh, to take on a human form, to leave his glory in order to live a life perfectly for, for, for the Father, in complete obedience, and a, a complete obedience uh, in, in accord with Philippians 2, even obedience to death, that he dies uh, a sinner's death on the cross for me and you. He dies in our place. He, he pays the penalty. Uh, he redeems us from sin. Uh, he wipes clean our slate. He, he wipes clean the stain that is on us. And he deals with the wrath of God in himself as God executes his holy judgment on Christ on our behalf. This is how the, the Son loves the Father. And then the Spirit loves the Son and the Father. The Spirit, as Jesus said, comes, and his one desire, his sole purpose, is to glorify the Son through the truth, to lead all of, of the, those who have put their faith in Christ into the truth of Christ. And the, and, the, and the Spirit loves the Son and the Father in living in total obedience and guiding and leading his people into the process of sanctification by comforting them, uh, guiding them, uh, loving them, uh, expressing uh, the attributes of God in them through uh, his indwelling in everyone who's put their faith in Christ. And this is how we see the love that is existent in the Trinity. The Spirit shows love for the Son and the Father by regenerating the heart of the believer so that the believer can demonstrate demonstrate their love for Christ through obedience to his commands. They are washed and purified by the word of Christ that dwells in them through the Spirit. God's love is not simply an intrinsic love, but a steadfast love as well, which means he is unique and unsurpassed in his ability to remain loyal and faithful with consummate perfection to the reality of his character. Therefore, he is staunch in his devotion to his people, tenderly displaying an affectionate disposition, disposition as he draws his people to himself. This is the steadfast love of God. This is the word kased in the Hebrew. This is what uh, the Hebrew word is really pointing to, seeking to communicate, seeking to show us. This Old Testament uh, word, we find uh, there's a much starker contrast between uh, the word ahab, which is a, a certain type of love, and then kesed, which is a, uh, a holy other love. It is a love reserved for God and God alone. This distinction 
provides a great clarity for us in understanding how God's love is exclusive and distinct and unlike no other love. When the Old Testament generally speaks about uh, love, whether it's love for someone or love between two people or love for something, uh, it uses this word ahab, right? But predominantly it's used to, to predominantly uh, the word that is used to refer to God's intrinsic love, God's devoted love, God's committed love, God's unwavering love is that word kesed. And it uniquely describes and conveys the idea of love. It is a committed and devoted, infinitely unwavering, and constantly caring, everlasting in its devotion. Listen to these uh, texts from Psalm, uh, both Psalm 103, Psalm 106, and Proverbs 3 about God's steadfast love. It gives us an, an understanding of how it is that we can describe this and what it leads to. Psalm 103, 17 says this, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. There is an infinite reality this, to the steadfast love of God. There is an infinite reality to the commitment of God to his people. There is an infinite reality to the care of God for his people. And it is his people that he shows his love to, his people that regard him with the highest esteem, uh, which live in a continual reverential way before him, which uh, those who consider their utter bankruptcy spiritually without him, uh, the humility of, of those who bow down before him are the ones in which God shows his steadfast love to, his committed love to. It is those who respect and revere his lordship in their lives. Those are the ones that receive the devoted, committed, steadfast love of God. Listen to this in Psalm 106, 45. So God's uh, steadfast love is infinite, right? God's steadfast love is also patient. Listen to this. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. And uh, when they're talking about for their sake, they're talking about Israel. For their sake, he remembered his covenant. He, even when they were, they were uh, amidst all of their idolatry, uh, when they lived their life uh, in complete um, rebellion to God. You know, when, when Israel, uh, they were essentially, they were cheating on God, but by worshiping other gods, when they lived this life of adultery before God, even in the midst of that, even in their rebellion and their separation, even when they chased after dead gods that could not speak, that could not act, that could not show favor and kindness and love, even then, God does this. He remembers his covenant, and he relented according to the abundance of of his steadfast love. What does that mean? God relents in his judgment over his people when they sin against him in accord with his steadfast judgment. He is patiently kind with us and eager to lavish his compassionate and love upon us. Even when we live in rebellion to him, even when we don't want to follow, even when we don't want to listen, even when we want to go our own way, even though we want to live life on our own terms, 
God says, I am remembering my steadfast love for you and my commitment to you through the covenant I've made with you. Proverbs 3, 11 through 12 says this, that God's steadfast love leads to discipline. Listen to this. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. How does God express his delight over his son? It is through the discipline of him. Why? Because God has called us to reflect his highest character. God's love is not only an intrinsic love and a steadfast love, but it's a sacrificial love. Most importantly, we have to understand this about God's love, that it finds its greatest expression in its sacrificing, um, in its sacrificial definition, in its sacrificial attribute. God with um, abounding affection consummate care and stunning clarity demonstrates his unswerving, unwavering, infinitely devoted, steadfast love for us through Christ. If it's one thing you get from the love of God and the teaching about the love of God, uh, the biblical understanding about the love of God, what the word of God heralds as the love of God, it is this right here. It is that God's love is most expressly and accurately and wonderfully portrayed and demonstrated and displayed through the sacrificial love of Christ in the gospel. The gospel is the pinnacle of his promise and the most accurate display of God's complete commitment and ultimate devotion in the uncompromising love poured out for all mankind at the cross. How is it that God showed his love for us? He died. Christ being truly man died. Now God cannot die, but Christ coming and being truly God and truly man and taking on a human nature died. That's why this doesn't make sense uh, to those who ascribe to the wisdom of the world. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2. He said, uh, the word of Christ the, is folly to those who are perishing. The word of Christ is folly. It doesn't make sense. It, it, it's meaningless to those uh, in the world who operate with worldly wisdom. Well, how is it that God become, or how is it that God most expressly shows his love for his people? He dies for them? That makes no sense, but it is the power of God unto salvation for those who live by the Spirit, for those who know, for those who understand. It is the power of God unto salvation, the word of Christ, the gospel. Our salvation in Christ, our redemption from sin, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is all the evidence we need to apprehend the assurance of God's love for us. It is all we need. How is it that God has shown his love to you most richly? It is through the cross of Christ. It is through the forgiveness of our sin. 
It is through the reconciliation of man to God, through the perfect man and true God, the man God, Christ. That is how we know. 1 John 4, 9 and 10, it makes it explicitly clear. He says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. In what? In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, this agape love, that God sent his son into the world. God sending Christ is how God has shown his love for you. In this, God showed his love that he sent Christ so that we may live through him. The idea that here is, is that we were dead without Christ. But now we live through Christ, that we cannot uh, attain a, a spiritual life of, of, of godliness on our own. But it is only through Christ and his death through the gospel that we attain a life of godliness, as, as Peter said in his second epistle that we began with today. It is through Christ that we may live. In other words, we are dead outside of him, not even able to respond to him. But in this, the love of God was made manifest. Christ coming. In this is love. Again, John reiterates, in this is love. Well, in what? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. In this, this is the love of God. God has shown his love precisely, most accurately, most stunningly through Christ coming and dying and wiping our slate clean, satisfying the holy justice of God, taking away our guilt, rendering us justified and righteous in the sight of the Father through his blood. We are purged of sin. In this is the love of God. In Christ, God now shows nothing but mercy towards us. No longer judgment, no longer condemned. And God was motivated by nothing else but his love. He was not motivated by anything in us. Let's get that straight. First uh, John makes that clear. John says it, that in this is love. Not that we have loved but that he has loved us. What is love? Not, that, uh, not our love for God. In this is love that God sent his son for us. We have to understand something, that the cultural narrative is to, is to continually herald this idea that is unbiblical, that God somehow was motivated by the value he saw in us. That God somehow was motivated by something he saw in us to save us. Nothing could be further from the truth. If that is the reality, then God needs something else outside of his steadfast love to motivate himself to save us. If God was motivated by anything else outside of his steadfast love to save us, if somehow we earned God's motivation, if somehow we earned God's uh, desire to save us, if somehow we merited something from God in order to cause him to do something on our behalf, then grace is annulled. The grace of God is non-existent 
when we uh, somehow uh, apprehend the truth that we caused God to save us. This is what John is saying, that in this is the love of God. Not that he loved us, or not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent us. See, our value was not uh, motivating God to save us, but the fact that God saves us through his steadfast love ascribes value to us. There's a big difference. Our value was determined by his steadfast love shown toward us not a motivator for his steadfast love to be shown. Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, 7. Moses says this, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you, simply because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to his fathers. In other words, God is showing his steadfast love to you to uphold the value of his character. If God doesn't show his steadfast love to you, then he denies himself. But make no mistake, Israel did nothing to motivate God to choose them. Israel did nothing to, to cause God to elect them. It was not because they were great in number or wonderful or they showed some type of love towards him or they showed some sense of devotion to him. No, God was motivated strictly, exclusively by his steadfast love. Any other assertion seeks to annul the grace of God. God saves to uphold the value of his reputation. Listen to this in Romans 5.8. But God shows his love for us in that while, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what is our response? What is our response to this steadfast love? What is our response to this affectionate love, this committed unwavering love displayed most beautifully through the gospel? This love should provoke a response from the recipient. This love should cause something in us. So what is our proper response? Psalm 119 gives us a clue as to what and how we should respond to the love of God. Listen to these words. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation according to your promise. This is such wonderful prophetic language about Christ. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. My hope is in your word. My hope is in your instructions. My hope is in your commands. I will keep your law continually forever and ever. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I've sought your instructions. I've sought your commands. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So what is our response to this steadfast love? What is our response? It is an unyielding desire to love God 
and to obey God. Our obedience is the response to a steadfast love shown to us. The proper response it is, is a desire to, to please God by, by loving his word, by studying his word, and displaying fidelity to his unchanging commands. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And he said, uh, if you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you keep every command. And so the, the law of God, the moral law of God is not null and void just with a new covenant, but it is still in effect that God's desire is for you to keep his commands. Jesus says, keep my commands. I'll know if you love me, if you keep them. But, but here's the difference between the old and the new. Uh, the old covenant, it was do, do, do. It was, you had to keep the commands to be saved. You had to keep the commands uh, uh, to keep your relationship right with God. But now under Christ, uh, the commands are not a, a heavy hand anymore, but they are a result. Uh, the desire to keep them are a result of the receiving of the steadfast love through Christ and his sacrificial display on the cross for us. The love that motivates obedience is a love produced by the work of the Holy Spirit in us as we apprehend the goodness of his steadfast love expressed most magnificently through the cross of Christ. And that is the love of God. That is the intrinsic, steadfast, sacrificial love of God. And that concludes our study. That concludes our dive into the attributes of God. I want to thank you for joining us. If you have been watching us through the series, if you have been keeping up with us through the attributes, uh, this, I think, was week 12 as we've gone through uh, so many of the different attributes of God. And I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope this has been a rich blessing for you. I hope that you've been able to uh, you know, sort of apprehend and uh, uh, you know, arrest some uh, reality of God and who he is through his word by understanding and diving deep and pondering and considering the attributes of God. So thank you guys for joining us. Take care, and uh, we'll see you next time.